This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today, uh, just buckle up. This is going to be a long one. We're going to get into a lot of details because, as I've told you before on this podcast, as we've done, we've got the Race in America series. So if you go back to episodes 142, 143, 144, and then we skip to 155 and 156, we never thought we would really cover the subject of race on this podcast because there's too many tendrils, too many things going off. There's too many things that are attached to it. But we decided to do that a long time ago, and then we're going to keep doing that. And obviously, right now with what's going on in the country, especially in the wake of the Derek Chauvin trial verdict, we we are wanting to bring you a lot of this information so that we can help you break it down because we know you guys get your news from a lot of different sources. You get your commentary from a lot of different sources and we're just one of those sources. But again, I just want to kind of remind you because some of you might be saying, Kyle, it's Friday. Like, you know, all this stuff happened earlier in the week. Where have you been? But similar to what I did initially with when everything went down with George Floyd last summer, I took about two months really to absorb everything that was happening in the country, Right. Now, around that time is when we had our son, and so that that kind of made it uh, really convenient to do so. I had about six or seven podcast interviews that were already edited, already done, and already ready to go. I just set them so that they could be released. But with this one, I just needed a few days to really kind of get the lay of the land, see what's going on, kind of collect my thoughts, because that first day, I feel like a lot of people said a lot of really dumb things, and we certainly are going to talk about some of that today. But I just wanted to give it a couple of days before I went with that. And so if you're wanting to know what we're going to go into in this podcast, if you stick with us, I'm going to give you my thoughts on the verdict. Okay. I'm also going to give you my thoughts on the reaction to the verdict, which in a lot of cases is even more important to some people. Uh, but also we're going to get into some of the downstream consequences and there are going to be a lot of, of, of this verdict. It's going to affect a lot of people and a lot of people in a not very good way. But then at the end, I'm going to give you the three main points that I think is important about this entire situation. And when I say this entire situation, I don't just mean Derek Chauvin. I don't just mean George Floyd. I mean the entirety of what we're experiencing right now in the United States of America. And for some of you that aren't listening to this, I know we have a lot of listeners in Canada, New Zealand, uh, Australia, and the UK. This still affects you. This, it, this absolutely affects you because your culture is at least somewhat similar to what we have here in the United States. And so uh, something that you should be paying attention to. But also, if you stick with us to the end, I'll give you my thoughts on the Micaiah Bryant shooting that happened in Columbus, Ohio, which was on the same day as the verdict being read, because there's a lot of things that we need to discuss with that. But we need to go ahead and go right now to April 20th, earlier this week of 2021. We got the verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. And here it was. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed juror four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Jury four person 019. So there you go, guys. The jury only deliberated for about 10 hours, which 
for a case like this with three charges, right? Two of them murder, one of them manslaughter to only do 10 hours worth of deliberation was rare. You had a lot of people that were on both sides of the aisle, both sides in the news cycle, basically talking about how, hey, this this was really, really quick. This is quicker than what you would expect because there was so much uh, testimony that was given. There were so many things to go over, and yet they returned a verdict that quickly. So that was very interesting. But I do, before we go any further, and I kind of give you my thoughts on how the verdict broke down, I want to break down the charges because I think there are a lot of people because every state's a little bit different in how they define certain things. So here in Oklahoma... We're, we don't even have third degree murder. I don't think like there, there's different things that are different in each community. So let's let's start with the first one. Second degree murder while committing a felony. No, now for Derek Chauvin, that would be a 12 and a half year max sentence. And guys, I know I keep saying Chauvin. I've heard Chauvin, Chauvin. I'm just going to keep saying Chauvin because it's stuck in my head. So let's just kind of move on. But for Derek Chauvin, that carries a 12 and a half year max sentence because he doesn't have any priors, right? So you've heard people like, oh, that's going to be 25 years in prison. No, that's not really the case. But in order to convict there, you require that felony assault that there was a felony assault that occurred and that it resulted in the murder. Okay. So the prosecution had to show that Chauvin intended to commit a felony that resulted in the death of George Floyd, that he knowingly committed the felony. Okay. So that's the first count. The second is third degree murder, which again carries a 12 and a half year max sentence because he doesn't have any priors. So this charge, and a lot of people have talked about this, this charge didn't really even make sense. I'm not even sure why this charge was part of the trial because basically this falls under what is called depraved heart murder. Okay. Depraved heart murder. So if you go to uslegal.com or any of these other legal places, I pulled the definition off here, but depraved heart murder is a killing that results from gross negligence. Now, if you just read that, you might think, well, isn't that uh, applicable in this situation? But they give an example to kind of make it a little bit more, uh, you know, easily to digest. So for example, if a man practicing shooting in his backyard located in a suburban area accidentally shoots and kills someone, he can be charged with murder under the depraved heart murder theory. Other examples that were given uh, throughout the last several weeks included like if you're throwing a a brick or a cinder block off of a bridge into oncoming traffic and then somebody veers off and, you know, gets killed or something like that, that would be another example of depraved heart murder. Uh, You know, shooting a gun near a crowded area, you know there's people around, but you have blatant, wanton disregard for that. You're, You're shooting those people. So it's essentially gross negligence towards a group of people that results in the killing of an individual person or persons, right? So that's the easiest way to think about that. Didn't really make a lot of sense in this case, but that was that charge. And then the last charge was second degree manslaughter, and that has a four-year max sentence. And so they basically had to prove that there was reckless disregard for the life of George Floyd. That, that was the main legal hurdle that they had to get over. Reckless disregard by Derek Chauvin of George Floyd. So here is my opinion of the verdicts in light of the evidence that I saw presented by the prosecution and the case presented by the defense. So for second-degree second murder while committing a felony, I don't think the evidence warranted a guilty verdict. Okay, I'm going to get more into that here in a second. But again, when we're talking about murder, we're talking about intent. There's a whole lot of things there. I don't think that they had the goods to prove that. Now, third-degree murder, again, I don't think the charge made sense in the first place. The evidence presented certainly didn't do anything to change that in my mind. And then second-degree manslaughter, I'm not sure that that was proven either by the prosecution. But it's at least plausible. That is at least plausible based on the wording of the statute or of the law there, which I read, mainly because Floyd stopped moving at one point when Derek Chauvin was on his back, right? But Derek Chauvin stayed on his back. So I can see how a prosecution could build a case and convince a jury of Derek Chauvin's peers to to basically convict that. But I can also see why Derek Chauvin stayed on George Floyd's back because of the gathering crowd. 
and the things that the crowd was doing and saying, which we'll get more into a little bit later. But I really think, as I was kind of thinking through this case, there are really two main reasons why the jury found Derek Chauvin guilty on all three counts, okay? The very first thing is that the prosecution's arguments were based on emotion, and they worked. The, the prosecution didn't build much of a facts-based case. They, they really appealed to emotion, and that, that apparently you know, resonated with this group of people. But the second thing, which is more nefarious, uh, but also probably more important, is these jurors were scared to death of what would happen to them and their families and their city, frankly, if they didn't decide guilty on all counts. So uh, he got a lot of crap for this, but on the night of the Derek Chauvin reading the, the, the verdict, uh, Tucker Carlson started out his show basically by saying, you know, th those people uh, gave their verdict and the verdict was essentially, please don't hurt us, right? And people are like, how could he say such a thing? And it doesn't make any sense. But guys, they, th these people, these Antifa people, these BLM people, they found what they thought was the house of one of the, one of the defense uh, witnesses. And it didn't end up being this person's house, but they severed a pig's head. They put it on this guy's doorstep and they splattered blood all over the entryway of this person's house. Now, again, it didn't end up being that person, but again, like that, that could have happened to any one of these jurors. And just recently, I think I just read this this morning as of the recording of this, I'm recording this on Friday, just this morning. One of the alternate jurors, because they do have alternate jurors in case, you know, someone's got to go out and family emergency, health emergency or something like that. They said, yeah, I was absolutely fearful for my life if I ended up being in the jury room and had to, you know, make some sort of a declaration as to, you know, guilt or innocence that they were going to come after me. Right. Like that, that's an obvious thing. So, again, the two main reasons I think they found him guilty is the prosecution's you know, arguments appealed to reason and they worked. And then these jurors were scared to death what would happen to them and their families. Like that, that's absolutely something that's important to consider. But I think all that leads to a huge question that most people should actually care about. And it's did the prosecution prove that Derek Chauvin's actions caused the death of George Floyd beyond a reasonable doubt? Okay, there's three very important things that I said there. Did the prosecution prove that Derek Chauvin's action caused the death of George Floyd beyond a reasonable doubt? Okay, prove caused beyond a reasonable doubt. Because remember, in order to convict in a murder charge, you have to prove intent. Not imply intent, not to suggest intent. You have to prove intent, okay? And if you were just a neutral observer looking at the evidence that was presented, I'm not sure you get there. Because again, Beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard. So I'm going to give you one fact that most of you likely know by now, but if you don't, this is the one fact that tells me that the jury should have found Chauvin not guilty of murder. George Floyd, at the time of his death, had three times the lethal amount of fentanyl in his system. Three times the lethal amount. Now, some people said, oh, well, he had a high tolerance because he was a drug addict and all those different things, perhaps. But if they had found this guy on the street, just dead on the street, or found him in his apartment or in his house or something like that, it would have been immediately declared an overdose. Because even he was a big guy. What was he, the 6'6 six, six, six or 6'5 six, or something like that, 240, 250 pounds? This was a big man. He still had three times a lethal dose of fentanyl in the system. Isn't that one fact compelling enough? To, to go beyond the statute or, or the requirement of beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and guys, if that's not compelling enough, because again, I don't really have a dog in the fight other than the fact that I don't want to see my country burn. If that's not compelling enough to you, just that one fact, 
Here are some other compounding factors, okay? And, you know, basically on top of the three times a lethal dose of fentanyl. So one, he had Percocet in his system, right? That was mixing with the fentanyl. He had methamphetamine in his system. He had 75% blockage in one of his arteries. He had COVID-19. And just about a month prior to this incident with Derek Chauvin, he had OD'd on drugs and had to be rushed to the hospital. He almost died a month before that of a drug overdose. So just that alone, in my opinion, should have been enough for the jury to be like, we can't conclusively say that it was Derek Chauvin's actions that directly led and was mostly responsible for the death of George Floyd. I think I'm being very, very neutral here and right down the middle. Again, and I'm a justice-based person, but it has to be just. It has to be right. And now I kind of want to get a little bit into what each side tried to do in this trial. So you obviously had the prosecution and the defense. I think both of their approaches were, were pretty simple, right? And, and frankly, I don't think that either side did amazingly well. Of course, you know, one side clearly got what they wanted. But the, the prosecution, as I mentioned before, they appealed to emotion. That was their main thing going into this is we're going to appeal to emotion. In the defense, they were going to introduce other likely causes of death, and they were going to say that Chauvin was operating based on his training and proper procedure. That, that was seemingly, if you could boil it all down, that's what both sides were doing. So the prosecution didn't want you focusing at all on any other contributing factors to George Floyd's death, obviously, right? So they, they kept telling the jurors, and this ended up being very effective, and this was being parroted all around the country in all these different news sources. They kept telling the jurors, believe your eyes. Believe your eyes. Now, you can keep repeating that, and that's super convenient to tell those jurors that when all the evidence outside of that one camera video suggests that there are a myriad of other reasons why George Floyd could have died that day and did die that day. Right. So this believe your eyes thing, well, your eyes can be deceiving, right? Because one thing that the defense presented in this case is they presented a different angle of this entire incident, which showed that a lot of what was going on is Derek Chauvin's shin and knee was actually across the shoulder blade, right? It looked like the neck from one angle, but it was across the shoulder blade of George Floyd, which is consistent with the evidence from the medical examiner, which is that there was no tracheal or neck damage, right? Which would be consistent with someone basically dying because they were asphyxiated by, you know, the pressure from a body part. Right. But the other thing here is the prosecution, they offered immunity to George Floyd's friend who was with him in the car. So if he would testify, they were going to offer him immunity. Now, why didn't he testify? And, and why did they offer him immunity? Because this friend that was in the car that kind of watched this and experienced all this, oop, he just happened to be George Floyd's drug dealer. He likely sold him that fentanyl and that methamphetamine and that Percocet. He had likely been supplying him with things like that for a long time, right? And so, obviously, if this guy got up there and testified without potential immunity, if things went sideways in the trial, he could go down for manslaughter, right? Because if it was determined like, hey, the, the more likely thing that happened that day is that George Floyd overdosed on, you know, lethal dose of all these, you know, contributing things all into this one hodgepodge in the system, well, now the drug dealer could potentially go down. That's an issue. So... I think that there's a huge question in this. There, there's a lot of huge questions, but this is just one that came up for me in preparing this podcast. And it's a question that most people don't actually care about. And it's, did Derek Chauvin get a fair trial? And I know some people are like, oh, you know, you're saying he didn't get a fair trial because you wanted him to get off and all those different things. Again, I want people that did something wrong to get the exact level measure of justice that they deserve in, in every situation, right? 
So I think grace can abound, but grace doesn't always have to abound in a courtroom. Okay. So this is seemingly an incredibly easy question to answer. And the answer is no. Derek Chauvin did not get a fair trial here. So we seem to have forgotten even about the concept of innocent until proven guilty. And in some cases in this country, okay, because we were told for the better part of a year, right? I think it was 11 months from the time this incident happened to the time of the verdict. We were told for the better part of a year that Chauvin was guilty. He was clearly guilty. We have the video. We don't need any other evidence and that he's a racist. So more on that on just a second. But again, there was no presumption of innocence here for Derek Chauvin. And guys, before you think I'm some sort of Derek Chauvin apologist, he might be a rotten guy. Like, I don't know the guy personally. He, he doesn't seem like the type of guy that I would probably hang out with. But most of us don't really know much about Derek Chauvin. Okay. But in terms of did he get a fair trial, the trial took place in Minneapolis. Ground zero for Black Lives Matter, essentially, and has been for the last 11 months. The trial should have 100% been moved out of Minneapolis. I mean, what compelling argument can you give for the fact that that trial should have taken place in that city unless you didn't want it to be fair to Derek Chauvin? Okay. Now, now here's the other thing is the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, they settled on a civil lawsuit with the family of George Floyd while they were doing jury selection. So they had to find people in the jury that didn't know anything about this case. That's part of the thing, because if you come in with any preconceived notions, that's not fair for the trial. So they had to find people that apparently have been living under a rock and they found people from the age of 20 all the way up to the age of 60 that apparently were unfamiliar with this case. But while they're being selected, you would think that these people are probably going to start paying attention to the news, right? And so they had to have seen the news that the city of Minneapolis basically signaled that there was guilt here by their employee. Derek Chauvin, a police officer for their police department, right? And, and, and additionally, the mayor of Minneapolis, his name's Jacob Frey, he essentially said that if we know anything about this case, we know that George Floyd was killed by the police. That, that was like his main point in all of this, right? So, so how is it possible that they, they couldn't move the venue to a more neutral site, right? Minneapolis is the epicenter of all this anger and angst and, and rioting and looting and burning and murdering and all these other different things. It had to be moved out of there. Also, another reason why I don't think he really got a fair trial is because the judge in this case, Peter Cahill, he allowed an entire week. I think there was three total weeks of testimony in this trial, maybe four, but he allowed an entire week of testimony. That was emotions. And, and how did that make you feel based, right? He had, the, he had this 911 operator and he had, you know, this person that witnessed it firsthand and this person that witnessed firsthand, like, how did this make you feel? Like, how, how did you feel after this happened, after you heard that he died? You know, like, what are your thoughts on all these different things? And none of that was probative. I think Ben Shapiro pointed that. It's not probative. Like, we didn't learn anything about the case. We just got a lot of people's emotions, right? Again, that was the prosecution's entire point. But the, the, the judge allowed that. He, he allowed this to happen. Okay, and I don't think that was certainly fair to the case because it gave no additional information to the facts of the case, which are way more important than the feelings of the case. Another reason is that in, in this, this is absolutely astonishing. And I feel like I only found this out a few days before they started uh, the jury deliberations. But the judge, Cahill, he did not require that the jury be sequestered. So sequestration in this case would basically be, we're going to put you in a facility, you know, there, there's no phones, like there's no, like you can call home to family or, but basically there's no news, there's no nothing. You are completely sequestered until this is done, right? 
We'll keep you safe, but we're also going to keep you where the only thing you can essentially focus on in terms of this case is what is presented in the courtroom. And that did not happen. They were not sequestered. So the judge is like, well, you know, I basically told these people, you know, don't watch the news and don't talk about the case, you know, outside the courtroom or the jury room. But, but really like these jurors are all of a sudden in the most important court case, maybe since OJ Simpson in this country. And you're telling them, oh yeah, yeah, you know, honor system. Please don't uh, look at the news. Please don't talk to anyone about it. So I think the no sequestration was it was a big issue. And part of the issue with that is because of what people said out loud. Okay. So there's House of Representatives member Maxine Waters from California. She literally made, and this is, again, the jury's not sequestered at this point. She traveled from her district in California to Minneapolis, a couple thousand miles, basically to make a threat to the people on the jury. This was the threat. I am very hopeful and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that is say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we, got, we cannot go away. And not just manslaughter, right? I mean... Oh, no, not manslaughter. No, no, no. This is, this is guilty for murder. I don't know whether it's in the first degree, but as far as I'm concerned, it's first degree. It's coming from what happens if we do not go get what you just told? What should the people do? What should protesters on the street do? I didn't hear you. What happens? What should protesters do? Well, we, we got to stay on the street. Uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we mean business. We've got to be more active. We've got to be more confrontational, right? We want guilty, guilty, guilty. Not just guilty on manslaughter. We want him guilty of a charge he wasn't even charged with, right? First degree murder. This is a sitting member of Congress, right? Been in Congress for forever. The judge in this case should have immediately declared a mistrial because this was leading the news. Left wing, right wing, center. It led all the news for an entire day. And to think that the jury didn't see that and see that this woman is sitting out there with all these people banging drums and screaming and going crazy, getting ready, preparing to destroy the entire city of Minneapolis, and that that couldn't possibly have an effect on these jurors is crazy. Now, even the judge basically mentioned, he's like, yeah, I wish these you know representatives would stop talking about this, and I wish they would just let us do our thing and you know just pay attention to their oath to the Constitution and all that. But they didn't. That's not something that they were doing. Right. And so the, the mistrial should have been declared, but the judge was like, yeah, you know, this actually does give him grounds for an appeal to get this, you know, all of the things that might be decided here overturned. But then he didn't do anything else with that. And kind of the last reason here why I think that he didn't really get a fair trial is because the big dog, the, the co-president, Joe Biden, he's co-presidents with Kamala Harris. He made public comments about this again while the jury wasn't sequestered. Right now, he kind of makes mention of that. But this is what co-president Joe Biden said. Praying the verdict is the right verdict, which is, I think it's overwhelming in my view. I wouldn't say that unless the, the jury was sequestered now. Not hear me say that. He was praying for the right verdict. And if you were thinking, oh, well, he's being neutral there. Well, his comments right afterwards would tell you that, no, he wasn't being neutral. He wasn't being hopeful for the right verdict in terms of the verdict that was closest to the truth. It was a verdict that he wanted. He was praying for it, fervently praying for it, right? And he's like, oh, I wouldn't be saying this unless they were sequestered. You don't think that they got word that the most powerful person on the planet thinks that they should bring back the right verdict? Is it not obvious what he wants the verdict to be, right? So obviously there was a lot of reaction. 
to the verdict, not just from Joe Biden and all these other folks, but there was elation. There was elation all over the place. There were people in the streets that were crying. And, and, you know, for a lot of these people, they felt vindicated. They felt vindicated. They're like, okay, you know, we didn't get our way with, you know, uh, Darren Wilson in, you know, in Missouri, and we didn't get our way with, uh, George, you know, George Zimmerman in Florida. We, we didn't get our way, but we got our way on this one. You know, we got one back for the home team or something like that. That was seemingly some of the, some of the things that seemed to be happening there. Black Lives Matter in Antifa. Uh, they were literally on standby to destroy cities all over the country and, and maybe even all over the globe in case this didn't go their way. Right. I mean, these people were, were getting ready to destroy their own cities. Right. I mean, they had the Molotov cocktails ready. They had their masks ready. They had their bricks ready. They're ready to destroy everything, right? They were on standby. And isn't that interesting? Just a little sidebar that they were doing the same thing. If Trump got reelected, I I talked about that before, right? Like they they were just ready. They were ready to do what they knew would be effective. And we'll talk more about that later on. But what's funny is I feel like the, the, probably the DNC, the democratic national convention, they must've sent out a message with the word accountability in all caps, because that's what I saw all across Twitter, all across Facebook from, from athletes to celebrities was the word accountability in all caps, accountability, accountability, accountability. Now, most of these people were probably not following the trial. They'd already made up their mind 11 months ago that Derek Chauvin was a racist and that he was guilty. But some of those responses, I mean, again, to a certain degree, you need to be responsible whether or not you are uh, up to date on the information that is, that is your requirement as a citizen is to be up to date. But some of these people, it's like, ah, oh, you're a professional basketball player. Like, you know, you're commenting on something, but you don't know anything about it. I can almost forgive it. But there were some fairly egregious responses, right? And there's too many, and I don't want to make this podcast five hours long. It's already probably going to go a little bit long today, but the most egregious response I saw to all of this was the house majority leader, Nancy Pelosi. Okay. And we'll get into some more responses, but this was just, it was weird. It was really, really weird. It, it was, it was very cult-like. It, it was very showy. But let me just, and, and guys, if you're only listening to this, I do have a YouTube channel where we're kind of showing you these clips. Even her body language was super, super weird in this. So let's go to what House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi said. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice because of you, and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. Unless we can change the law, this will be an episode. We change the law, we're going down a different path altogether. Thank you for sacrificing yourself, George Floyd. Is that what happened? And for those of you, again, that are just listening to this, she looked up at the sky and said, thank you, George Floyd, wherever you are, for sacrificing yourself for justice. His name will be synonymous with justice for all time. Again, this man who by all accounts was not a good man, again, being a drug dealer and and being a horrible person and armed robbing people isn't necessarily something that you should be getting the death penalty for, right? Because everyone's like, oh yeah, he was a horrible person, he was on drugs, does that mean you should get the death penalty? It's like, yeah, no serious person is making that comment. But Nancy Pelosi is talking about him like he's Jesus, (laughs) like he sacrificed himself for justice on the altar of justice so that we all could have justice. Just astonishing. 
I don't I don't understand why they would do something like that. Potentially it's because these people don't have an actual Judeo-Christian ethic inside of them. They don't actually have that morality. They don't see a just good God operating in this world. And so they're the ones that have to have justice. They're the ones that have to create the martyrs for what they're probably doing. Now, there's something that I want to talk about here that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because there's frankly not a lot to say. Well, I mean, maybe there's a lot to say. Who knows? But it's incredibly important. The number one narrative that was spun up by Black Lives Matter, Democrats, leftists, the mainstream media, and all those things are pretty much the same thing now, was this. Derek Chauvin is a racist, and he killed George Floyd because he was black. That is the number one thing we were told. Derek Chauvin is a racist, and he killed George Floyd because George Floyd was black. And that is the number one thing that was not proven in this case. The number one thing. Because here's the thing that's funny, and maybe it's not funny, maybe it's funny in a dark way. Derek Chauvin might actually be a racist. He might actually be a gross, horrifically terrible, racist, evil person. He might be that. He literally might be. But we saw no evidence of that whatsoever. None. Not a tweet, not an old Facebook post, not a buddy from high school. It's like, yeah, yeah, I used to go to Klan rallies. I I thought it was weird, but, you know, it was kind of cool to hang out with and drink beer with. Nothing. Not a single shred of it proving that this guy was a racist. And again, that's been the focus of everything since last summer was race in America, racial tension and all these things caused by a white police officer, a white racist, white supremacist police officer killing an unarmed black man. That's been the narrative, but we didn't see that guys. You haven't seen it either. There's not a shred of evidence that has been presented anywhere. There wasn't a second of testimony in this trial that showed that Derek Chauvin had animus in his heart towards people of color, specifically black people, none whatsoever. But that didn't stop the co-presidents, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, from doing a presser just minutes after the verdict. And guys, this was one of the most egregious things I've ever seen a president or, or maybe even any politician say it was gaslighting to the highest degree. I just, I couldn't believe what was said after all of this. Okay. I just couldn't believe it. So Kamala Harris, co-president Kamala Harris came up and spoke first. And then Joe Biden was kind of looking around like, Oh, where are we going? And, uh, uh, it's time for dinner, I think. And I got to walk the dogs. Oh wait, my dogs aren't here. And then Joe Biden gets up there and says something. So I'm going to play a little clip of what Kamala Harris said. And then we'll go right in to what Joe Biden said. This is absolutely astonishingly crazy. Here are the clips. This verdict brings us a step closer. And the fact is, we still have work to do. We still must reform the system. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the Vice President just referred to. There was systemic racism that's a stain on our nation's soul. <clears throat> the knee on the neck of justice for black Americans. Profound fear and trauma. The pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. Again, guys, in a case where there wasn't a single shred of evidence presented that Derek Chauvin was a racist. This is somehow indicative of systemic racial oppression. 
this is just another thing that is going to hurt the hearts of black and brown Americans or black and brown people all over the planet. That's what the co-presidents told us. I I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Now, I could to a degree because this is the world that we live in now, right? This, this This is what we did. All you people that just couldn't have a vote for Donald Trump on your record, even though you align with his ideology more and what the ideology of the Republican Party was, this is what you voted for. The reason why they can be so bold is because you people down in Georgia elected two nutcases to be your senators, thus giving them the power of the, the Senate as well. This is what you get. This race had, or the, this, this trial, this case had nothing to do with race whatsoever, but it's somehow deeply emblematic of racial injustice in this country. Because guys, we were told again for the last 11 months that George Floyd was killed by a racist white supremacist. And we were also told that there is a system that protects, that they protect racist white cops that hunt down and kill black people for no reason and that there would be no justice for those racist white cops. That's the system we live in. Now, those same people are saying that justice was served not complete justice, more on that in a minute, but that justice was served and that accountability had been given. Well, guess what, guys? You can't have it both ways. We can't be in this horrifically unjust system that protects racist, white supremacist, murderous cops, and also that justice was served in this one instance. Either the system is rotten to the core or it's not. You have to pick a side. So I think it's probably prudent at this point because I know some of you have gone back before you've listened to this episode. You maybe listened to the Race in America series, especially those first three episodes, 142, 143, 144. But there have been a lot of things that have changed in my mind since last year. And this isn't me flip-flopping. This is me changing my opinion on things based on the facts that we know now. So there were some things I felt last summer that I don't feel now. So I said in earlier episodes last summer in this series that Officer Derek Chauvin was in large part that was the exact phraseology I used. He was in large part responsible for George Floyd's death and that George Floyd was at least somewhat responsible for his death, right? But I've completely flipped on that, knowing what we know now. Because at the time, I didn't know that, that George Floyd had three times a lethal dose of fentanyl in the system, 75% blockage in one of his arteries, COVID-19, and Percocet in his system, and methamphetamine. I did not know that. That was not something that I, that I knew. And so now I feel like George Floyd is mainly responsible for his death that day. His actions directly led to his death. Derek Chauvin was, if anything, a small part of that. Also, I said in previous episodes that, that officers Thao, Lane, and Kung, who are all going to be on trial here but before long, that they were in some part also responsible for the death of George Floyd. But now I don't think that they're responsible at all. But I don't think their trials will go well for them, considering what we just saw happen, right? Because at this point, again, the only thing that I think could have, could have happened, could have changed, is once he stopped moving, once George Floyd stopped moving, at that point, it's at least possible that, George, or that uh, Officer Derek Chauvin could have gotten off of him. And, t- and Thao, Lane, and Kung could have possibly interceded there. But you know, we'll talk a little bit more about how that may have not been possible. I also said last year that I thought it was clearly a case of excessive force. I, I don't really feel that way anymore. Again, Derek Chauvin was a smaller guy. I think he was like 140 pounds, 150 pounds. He was giving up close to 100 pounds to a guy that was hopped up on drugs. And talk to any police officer that has dealt with a, a perpetrator that was on drugs at that time. 
some of them, sometimes they have superhuman strength, superhuman cardio. They're incredibly, incredibly hard to hold down. They're incredibly hard to keep control of. Again, if you go back to what we learned from the very beginning is that they were trying to get this guy in the back of the car and he kept fighting. You know, he kicked one of the officers. He, he just did not want to be put in the back of the car. So they, they acquiesced to that request and put him on the ground. But th- this was a guy that was using his strength and using his size and throwing it around. I also said that the death was tragic, that, that it was a sad death. Um, and it is sad for the people that knew and loved George Floyd, right? But I can't really say that it was tragic because I, I think even comedians have made this point. It's like, okay, if, if you go into someone's house and you intend to do them harm and kill, and kill them, but they kill you instead, that's not a tragic death. Now, I'm not saying in this case that that, that that was what was happening. Like, let's not assume that I'm saying something that I'm not saying. But this was a, a lot of actions by George Floyd in a row that directly led to the outcome that we saw. Okay? And again, I think that George Floyd is mainly responsible for his own death that day. I, I also said that it was really sad. Like, I, I said it was heartbreaking that seemingly George Floyd was calling out for his mother. He, he wanted mama, right? But even that didn't end up being the case. Mama was what he called his girlfriend, his girlfriend that had watched him overdose a month beforehand, his girlfriend that he did drugs with all the time. She was mama. He apparently wasn't calling out for his dead mother. I also said that I felt the crowd. I said that I was astonished at how appropriately the crowd that was witnessing this situation firsthand, how they acted. But that ended up not being the case either. Because again, all we saw for forever was that one angle and that one video that that one person shot. But that crowd may have caused Derek Chauvin to stay on top of George Floyd. The, the crowd was actively threatening the police officers. And you couldn't hear that in the initial video. There were guys saying, I'm going to F you up, like talking to Chauvin and talking to the other three cops that were on the scene, not all of which were white, by the way, which shouldn't matter, but apparently it does. But when the officers got that call to go to that area to deal with this situation, right? They knew they were going into a high crime area. And now, you know, they, they've had a struggle with this large man that they've, you know, got him. They tried to get him in the back of the police cruiser, couldn't do that. They got him on the ground. And now he's doing an approved police technique of putting the, the shin and, and knee across the shoulder blade and neck of George Floyd. And you've got a gathering crowd of people that are moving in closer, that are giving threats to you. And so people are like, why didn't Derek Chauvin just get off of him and immediately do CPR? A lot of times, even even paramedics, if it's too hot of a situation, they're not immediately going to put themselves in danger to try and help save another person, give them CPR, any other life-saving treatment, because they've got to get that person out of that situation into safety. But here you have this crowd gathering in on these people, right? And they're being hostile towards them. Some of them weren't, but some of them certainly were being hostile. So I can absolutely see why a police officer in that situation would stay in the position that they're in. Again, I'm not saying that's necessarily what he should have done in that situation. I can see why he did it, though. But also, I thought, and you thought as well, that George Floyd couldn't breathe because Derek Chauvin's knee was on his neck. And some people were like, oh, you know, if you can talk, you know, you can breathe. That's not always the best response. But I thought that as well, that George Floyd couldn't breathe because Derek Chauvin's knee was on his neck until I saw the MEU's report, the medical examiner's report. And the other evidence, right? I mentioned this a little bit earlier. He was, but George Floyd was saying that he couldn't breathe before he was even placed or attempted to be placed in the police cruiser. He said he couldn't breathe before all of that. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. This is before Chauvin, before his knee was anywhere near his neck. 
He also said, uh, this is George Floyd, he said, I ate too many drugs. This was brought up in the case, and no one talked about it. Right? One of the witnesses, hey, it sounds like he said, I, I ate too many drugs. They played the tape, and it's like, yeah. He said, I ate too many drugs. Okay? The medical, the medical examiner's report said that there was no damage to George Floyd's neck or neck muscles consistent with strangulation, right? Or, or asphyxiation. There was no damage to the blood, blood vessels or veins or arteries or the, the, to the blood flow in the neck area. There was no damage to that. There was also no damage to the trachea that was done. And you would think if this guy was killed because of trauma to the area, not allowing blood flow to the brain, there would have at least been trauma to the neck, the, the blood flow in the area or the trachea. And there wasn't in any of those cases. Also, the prosecution, I couldn't believe this witness. Uh, being an MMA fan and a jujitsu guy like this absolutely made my skin crawl. But the prosecution called an MMA fighter to the stand, right? I don't know anything about this guy. But he said that there's, he was basically talking about the different chokes and he's talking to a jury of, of which I'm sure are people that don't train jujitsu in any way, shape or form. But he called the choke that Derek Chauvin was doing to George Floyd a death choke. A death choke. Now, guys, I've been training jujitsu for almost four years. Now, I just got to be honest. Maybe my professors are holding out on me. Maybe John Donaher and all the videos I've watched of his, maybe everyone's holding out on me because you know what I've never trained? I've never trained nor heard of a death choke. A death choke. What is that? Now, I'm familiar with a blood choke. I'm familiar with a neck crank, but a death choke? But again, this is a MMA fighter, right? This is a supposed expert on these types of martial arts. And he's talking to a room full of apparent morons that think, oh, yeah, well, that was a death choke. If anybody in this room would know what that is, this guy would know. But then everyone else that knows a thing or two about chokes, they're like, that doesn't make any sense. A death choke? What is that? And the last thing that I, you know, I've certainly changed my opinions on a lot of things. But I thought last summer, that the $20 counterfeit bill, which is where apparently all this started, I thought it was the starting point for the incident. But I also thought it was not that important at the time. That was until we learned more. So at first, I was thinking to myself, you know, benefit of the doubt, maybe George Floyd had a counterfeit bill. I mean, a lot of you guys, you have a lot of bills in your wallet. One of them might be counterfeit. You don't, you don't really know it. You don't pay attention to it. You're not holding it up to the light before you go pay for gas. But in this situation, he goes to buy cigarettes, he uses a $20 counterfeit bill, and he knew it. This is how we know that he knew it. Because the person at the cash register or whatever, this is after George Floyd had walked out, he looked at the bill, he realized this is a fake bill. So he goes and talks to his manager, and they had a, apparently that had happened a lot at this store, maybe in this area, that people were using counterfeit money. And what happened in these situations is if you as the employee took a counterfeit bill, and you knowingly took it, even if it was a mistake and it was found out by management or something like that, that amount of money would be taken out of your check. Okay. So I'm sure this guy was making 10 bucks an hour, maybe less than that. Right. So he's looking at himself. He's like, man, there's two hours of my money that I have to give away if I don't go try to remedy this situation. So that employee goes out to George Floyd's vehicle where he's with his drug dealer and other people. And he says, Hey man, uh, this is a counterfeit bill. Can you just g give me a bill? Uh, give me a real bill or, you know, give me the cigarettes back. And George Floyd, acting like a bully, said, no, not going to do that. 
So apparently he goes back in, tells his manager, he's like, hey, the, the guy doesn't want to give me a bill. He doesn't want to give me the cigarettes back. That employee and the manager both come out and they basically say, hey, man, you gave us this bill. It, it's it's not a good bill. Please give us the cigarettes back or give us a real bill or pay for them in some way. He refused. Now, put yourself in that situation as George Floyd. You've gone into a gas station, a convenience store. You've paid for something. They come back out and tell you, hey, by the way, the bill you used was a counterfeit bill. Here it is back. Can you please give us real money? In that situation, I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea this was a counterfeit bill. I'll deal with that later. But yeah, let me pay you for the stuff that I am now consuming. Here's my debit card. Here's my credit card. Here's some change. Here's some other bills, right? He didn't do that. Now, why would a person not do that? He knew he was using a counterfeit bill. Again, using a counterfeit bill does not elicit a death sentence. That's not what any of us are saying. But again, this entire situation started because he was actively doing a crime and he was bullying another person in his community, basically stealing from him. Okay. But as you guys know, because you are smart observers of this whole thing, you could assume that there was going to be an immediate pivot, no matter what, after this verdict came down. Because after we all saw that the, the jury had only been deliberating for about 10 hours, we, we knew. And I turned to my wife and I told her and I said, hey, this is, this is going to be bad. Uh, and it's, it's going to come and it's going to be straight up guilty in all three counts. And, you know, I could kind of see the writing on the wall. It's like they, they, they weren't in the room long enough. But these people got the verdict that they wanted. But they didn't get what they're ultimately after. And that is the complete destruction of the system, the system, whatever that is. So, and if you're asking yourself, which system are these people talking about? The answer is yes. Which system are they trying to get rid of or, 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 or abolish or re reset? Yes. All of them. They want the entire system to be torn down. And that system is every American system and our way of life, and our way of doing things. And guys, there were some very prominent members of society that were signaling this right after the verdict was read, and one was former President Barack Obama. He tweeted this, Today a jury did the right thing, but true justice requires much more. Michelle and I send our prayers to the Floyd family, and we stand with all those who are committed to guaranteeing every American the full measure of justice that George and so many others have been denied. Okay, so somehow this case with George Floyd is connected to every other case of uh, supposed police mistreatment or mistreatment of black or brown people in the country. But again, focus in on this one part of it. But true justice requires more, much more, he said. Well, where's that lead? And then we also had a very prominent man, Martin Luther King III, tweeted this. Today, justice was served for the George family but we still live in a nation clothed in injustice. True justice for black Americans, black Americans can only come through a complete revolution of values. We need an overhaul of systems deeply rooted in racism. Hashtag justice for George Floyd. We need an overhaul of systems deeply rooted in racism. One thing that you didn't see from Barack Obama or Martin Luther King III was which systems in, in particular, guys, because they didn't say the criminal justice system. They didn't say the court system. They, they, they didn't say any of those things specifically. We need an overhaul of the entire system, right? Uh, we need true justice. And what does true justice require? It requires more. And then you had grifter extraordinaire, Ibram X. Kendi. He got on CBS News. So this is a serious news station. And he said this. 
So now what? Chauvin is headed to jail, but is America headed to justice? Is justice convicting a police officer or is justice convicting America? When tens of millions of Americans after Floyd's murder last year took to the streets of nearly every American town, we were convicting America. You see, it was never Derek Chauvin on trial. It was America. It was our systems. It was all of us. It was me on trial that day as an American, even though I'm of Choctaw Indian heritage and we were mistreated fairly terribly by other tribes and the United States federal government. And the other side of me is Irish. And we got here well after slavery had been going on and been abolished in this country. But that's reflective of me. I was on trial because I love this country and I'm very patriotic about it. This was never about George Floyd. This was never about Derek Chauvin. This was about the pivot that was coming. And if it didn't come after this case, it was going to come after another case. We have to tear the system down. Why? Because Barack Obama said so. Martin Luther King III said so. Ibram X. Kennedy, Kendi, who hasn't done anything with his life other than grift and steal money. They said so. And guys, when you have people like that that are prominent, some for no reason, but they're prominent people and they're causing downstream consequences and not just them. There are a lot of downstream consequences of this verdict. Okay. So there's several here that I want to go over. The first downstream consequence of this is that Black Lives Matter and Antifa know now that they're rioting and they're burning and they're looting and they're murdering can get them whatever they want. And their supporters in the Democratic Party know that now too. That like a child throwing a temper tantrum and the parents just give in and they just, oh God, they give them the toy or they give them the candy or they give them the whatever it is that they want in that moment. BLM and Antifa are doing that, but to a murderous and fiery degree. So if you're Democrats now, like before, they would try to distance themselves from Black Lives Matter, at least initially distance themselves from Antifa. Even Joe Biden in one of the debates last year against Donald Trump, he's like, hey, Antifa's not a group. You know, it, it's, come on, man. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea. It's not a real thing. Come on, man. But that's not the truth anymore. It never really was the truth. It was the truth in his head, or at least that's what he portrayed publicly. But why would Democrats distance themselves from Black Lives Matter and Antifa now? Those two murderous, rotten, evil groups can give them what they want. Because now they can hold communities and, and states in the country hostage. If you don't give us what we want, we'll let our dogs burn. We'll let them burn everything. We'll just let them loose. Why would they change that? That's a downstream consequence of this now. Another downstream consequence that we've seen is police departments around the country are going to struggle to get and keep officers. This is just the biggest duh of this entire thing, right? Because if you're a guy that's close to retirement, and you're a police officer, why would you not just take early retirement at this point? If you're a young guy and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I think I'd want to be a police officer, why would you do that? Because we've just seen evidence that you could, you could act in accordance with the training that you got and in accordance with, with every law on the books. You could do the right thing. You can, you can, and we're talking about a myriad of different situations. You could do the right thing in all these situations and you can still go down for murder. And guys, I just got to tell you, if you're in law enforcement and you're listening to this, if you're police and you're listening to this or a hypo or a sheriff's officer or something like that, if I were you right now, today, I would walk into my captain's office and I would make him tell me to my face, 
that he would never throw me under the bus because it's politically expedient. That, you know, you need to believe him that he's going to have your back, he or she. And if you don't believe that, that that person's going to have your back, transfer, get out of there. Because the police chief of Minnesota or Minneapolis, Minnesota, threw Derek Chauvin under the bus with his testimony, right? He absolutely threw him under the bus because he couldn't possibly stand in the breach against all of the oncoming storm. He couldn't do it. So these police departments, they're going to continue to struggle and we're going to see worse and worse types of people. We're not going to see the best of the best of us becoming cops. It's just going to be any Tom, Dick or Harry that they can get to come in and get through the academy. And then they'll give them, you know, a gun and a badge in a car and say, get the hell out of here. Try not to kill anybody. The third downstream consequence that I thought about when going through this is that crime will continue to skyrocket all over this country. So for those of you that haven't been paying attention, violent crime and murder is up 30 plus percent in major cities across the country. Think about that. In one year, you're like, oh, it's because COVID and people are all cooped up and all these different things. And, you know, they're, they're all hot and bothered and they want to do things. No, it's because police aren't policing anymore because they can't or because they don't want to. Because if you're a well-meaning police officer and you've got a wife and you've got kids at home and you've got a life that you're trying to build and you're just trying to get to your pension and all those different things, there, there's a situation that might require you that you're maybe not going to even act. You're just going to ignore it. And we've seen this. We've seen this so apparent, right? And that leads to, to the last downstream consequence that I want to talk about. And it's that more people, okay, specifically black people and other people of color, right? More than ever, those people are going to be murdered. And for blacks, black on black murder will go even higher. It's significantly, ridiculously high right now, but it will go even higher. So there's an, ex an excerpt from an article that was kind of looking at some studies that were done around Black Lives Matter and around the protests and what was happening in these communities after Black Lives Matter left, left right? So, so think of what was going on in Missouri with, you know, uh, George, uh, Michael Brown and, and all those situations and all that. So this is a quote from this article. I think it's important. Travis Campbell, an economics PhD candidate at the University of Massachusetts, published his findings in a recent preprint study examining the impact of Black Lives Matter protests on police use of force incidents. His analysis, which is still undergoing peer review, found that cities with Black Lives Matter protests had 15 to 20 percent fewer police homicides than expected if the protests had not taken place, equating to 300 fewer police killings nationwide over five years. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Let's keep reading. But in a revised, unpublished version shared with DailyMail.com, Campbell finds that cities with BLM protests also saw a 10% increase in murders overall, equaling between 1,000 to 6,000 additional murders nationwide. And most of the people that were in that 1,000 to 6,000, which is kind of a wide gap, are people of color. So these Black Lives Matter people that supposedly care about black lives, they don't care about those black lives. No, 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 no. They care about the black lives that fit their narrative, right? Because when a black police officer shoots a black suspect and kills him, doesn't make the news. When a black person murders another black person, both civilians, no, they don't really care about that. Ooh, ooh, but a white police officer. Ooh, he shot a black person. They're dead now. We can use that. We can raise money off of that. Okay? But... It's to the detriment of the people they say that they care about. Because again, this study says 300 fewer, less police killings, but between 1,000 and 6,000 additional murders of the populace in general. These actions have consequences. 
these cases aren't just neutral. These aren't just things that you talk about at the water cooler or with your friends or, you know, over coffee or something like that. And then they just move on. No, this is indicative of something larger. So guys, we're going to wrap up here. I want to kind of go through four main points. This first one's going to take me a bit, but there are four main points. When I look at this entire situation, I look at everything that's happened over the last 11 months or so. These are the four things that I think are the most important to talk about. Okay. The first is that facts don't matter. Feelings and narratives do. It's feelings and narratives. Okay. That applies in this case with Derek Chauvin, right? They were talking about feelings. How did this watching this make you feel they, they kept telling the jurors, like, just believe what you see. How did that video make you feel guys, right? It's about feelings and narrative. Okay. And that all comes to a head. This is where it's going to take me a little bit to unpack the situation that just happened the same day that the verdict was read in Columbus, Ohio, when a white police officer, again, his race shouldn't matter, shot and killed a 16 year old Makai Bryant, who was a 16 year old black young lady, which again, her race shouldn't matter. Okay. So what I'm going to read to you first, for those of you that have no idea who Makai Bryan is and, and what happened in Columbus, Ohio, here's some of the sample headlines that I pulled. So I just went to Google News and I just started reading and I could have listed way more. I think I grabbed about 10. So here's CNN. Makai Bryant, her mother says teen shot by police was loving, funny, and humble. IJR.com, Tlaib, that's Rashida Tlaib from Congress, on Makai Bryant shooting, maddening to see people ignore the fact that she, that a child was killed. Newsweek. Students demand Ohio State cut ties with police after Makai Bryant shooting. The Columbus Dispatch, where this took place. Makai Bryant, George Floyd, point to why police should be abolished now. Refinery29's website, Makai Bryant's TikTok. TikToks are a reminder that she was just a kid. Billboard, yeah, they're getting on the action too. Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, and more react to fatal police shooting of 16-year-old Makai Bryant. Yahoo News, the police officer who killed 16-year-old Makai Bryant is a military-trained expert marksman. The Hill, Columbus police chief grilled on training process after fatal shooting of Makai Bryant. USA Today, she was a child. White House comments on Makai Bryant shooting. Market Watch. Ohio police shot and killed 16-year-old Makai Bryant just minutes before Chauvin verdict body cam footage shows in the New York Times. This was via the AP. This is a failure, Columbus mayor says after death of Makai Bryant. Guys, and, and that went on for pages and pages and pages. I just tried to, you know, get a large swath of different types of news sources so that you could check those out. So essentially, this is what the media, some of those headlines that I read you, that's what the media and the blue checkmark folks on Twitter want you to know about the story. That a, a gentle, loving, innocent, calm, wonderful, honor roll student, amateur TikTok star, you know, 16 year old black girl named Makai Bryant was shot in broad daylight by a white cop who's probably a racist. And that's it. That's all you need to know about this story. And if you click on any of those stories, because Kyle's like, ah, well, Kyle, you can't just read the headlines. You tell us not to just read the headlines. Yes. But in some of these, you're having to go paragraph down and down and down. Need more paragraphs before you get to the part that's important about this story. Because all of those headlines and a lot of these stories, at least bury it until the end, they're leaving out some very interesting pieces of information. Namely, that Makai Bryant was literally about to stab another black girl with a huge kitchen knife before that officer heroically and courageously saved that girl from being stabbed, potentially and likely saving her life saving her life in front of all these people in the neighborhood. This guy saved her. Because in this moment, Makai Bryant, 
may have been this nice, sweet, innocent girl that was TikTok and all that. But in that moment, she was a knife wielding, crazy person. So what I'm going to do, and again, this is for you guys that are just listening to this, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to put the link somewhere so you can check it out. I want to show you the clip of this incident in full speed, and then I'm going to show you to it in slow-mo. Now, this is basically what the Columbus PD had to do the same day, because normally it's like it takes them a little bit of time to get the information out. They're trying to control stuff. They're trying to figure it out. They put this information out there immediately, okay? Because from the time this officer gets out of the car to the time that he pulls the trigger for the first time is about 11 seconds. So I'm going to show it to you in full speed. There's a lot going on. And then we'll take a little bit of break. I'll come back and then we'll show it in slow motion. So here is the clip of the incident with the police officer in Mackay Bryant in Columbus, Ohio at full speed. So I know, again, for you guys just listening to this, it's kind of hard to know what was going on there. But at the very end, he was like, she had a knife. She was going after her, right? She had a knife. Okay. So in this situation, just to describe it, and then I'll show it in slow motion. The police officer gets out of his car. He's walking up. There's, there's a fight ensuing. There's a lot of people kind of fighting. A girl with a knife basically pushes another girl to the ground. There, there's kind of a little bit of a scuffle. He's trying to calm everyone down. Hey, everybody, stop, stop, stop. There's a guy that's about to kick the girl that's on the ground in the head. And then you see Makai Bryant push a girl that's in a pink, you know, sweatsuit or jumpsuit or whatever, push her up against the car. And she is literally, her arm is moving towards this girl. And she has a knife, a kitchen knife in her hand. She's about to stab this girl in the abdomen, somewhere in the abdomen, right? This police officer gets his weapon out and shoots Makai Bryant before she's able to stab and potentially kill another black girl. Okay. So again, I know that that first one was in full speed and it's kind of hard to see all that because there's so much going on, but now let's check it out in slow motion. All right. So again, I know the guys of you that are just listening to this, just know that there's slow motion of the exact same event that I just described. So 
in this situation, in 11 seconds, a lot of people's lives changed and, and forever, right? Makai Bryant, who was violently attacking another girl, trying to kill her with a knife. And that's, that's why they were, the cops were even there because 911 called said, there's a girl with a knife trying to stab people, right? So they pull up into the situation. Oh, it's probably going to be crazy. And this guy pulls out his gun and puts four shots directly on target. And, and guys, if you look at the, if you look at the clip, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room to the right. Because if he misses, if this officer misses to the right, he actually shoots the girl that's about to get stabbed. So he manages to put a very well-placed first shot, and I think he followed up with three more shots to end this situation and save that girl's life. This police officer should get every available medal for, for valor and courage and bravery, every single one. Now, in this situation, we've got the video. And, and not to contradict myself from earlier, the video doesn't always tell the entire story. Certainly didn't in the case of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. But in this case, it pretty much does. Because everything that could have happened potentially up to this moment doesn't matter because the cop stopped a murder from happening by killing someone that was trying to kill someone else. A black girl trying to kill another black girl. Now, there were some absolutely egregious takes on this that defy logic and defy the imagination. Okay, but we're going to go ahead and start at the top here. We're going to start at the very, very tippy top. We're going to start with start with Jen Psaki, who is, you know, for gingers everywhere. We're like, who is this woman? We got to get her a different hair color. She's making us look bad. But this was her official reaction. This is from the White House. This was a prepared statement. She wasn't caught unaware, right? She flipped in her folder to the page where she had her prepared statement on this. And this is what Jen Psaki said. Hi, Ben. Taylor Poplar is with Spectrum News. Three quick questions. I'll make them quick. Um, First, has the president been briefed on 16-year-old Makaya Bryant being shot and killed by police in Columbus, Ohio yesterday? It happened moments before the Chauvin verdict came out. Yes. Um, I said to you yes, and let me me just say, since you gave me the opportunity, uh, the killing of 16-year-old Makaya Bryant by the Columbus police is tragic. She was a child. We're thinking of her friends and family and the communities that are hurting and grieving her loss. We know that police violence disproportionately impacts uh, black and Latino people in communities and that black women and girls, like black men and boys, experience higher rates of police violence. We also know that there are particular vulnerabilities that children in foster care, care like Micaiah, face. And her death came, as you noted, just as America was hopeful of a step forward after the traumatic and exhausting trial of Derek Chauvin and the verdict that was reached. So our focus is on um, working to address systemic racism and implicit implicit bias head on, and of course, to passing laws and legislation that will put much needed reforms into place at police departments around the country. Has the president been briefed on it? Yes. Huh? What? What? Systemic racism, implicit bias, communities of color being disproportionately affected by police. What? 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 This was your prepared statement? Guys, I'm fair. I, I call things down the middle when they're down the middle. But I could only see giving her the benefit of the doubt if she didn't know what had happened. If she had started her little diatribe by saying, okay, uh, we don't really have the facts of the case yet. I haven't seen the body camera footage yet. But, and then go into all your talking points about how America is systemically racist and how white supremacist cops are literally going around the entire country hunting down and killing black people. Okay, I could at least give it to you. That's your talking point. You got to stick to your talking points. But this is legitimately crazy. This is legitimately crazy. 
a black girl whose age doesn't matter, whose race doesn't matter, a human being was about to take a knife and thrust it into another human being, potentially killing them, and the cop did his job and saved this person. But Jen Psaki and the White House, they aren't the only crazy people. LeBron James, yeah, I'm going in on LeBron James. This guy, not only are you not the greatest basketball player ever, you're apparently also a colossal moron, right? So he posted a tweet, right? The tweet was a picture of the officer. Right? He was doxing the officer. Hey, guys, because at this point, we didn't know what this police officer looked like. We didn't have his name. We didn't have any information about him. He posted a picture of the police officer that shot the person trying to stab another person to death with the caption saying, you're next, in all caps, with an hourglass emoji and the hashtag accountability. How evil is this to do? Now, I know you're LeBron James. You're riding high. You know, Derek Chauvin's been convicted. You feel good about that. But at the end of the day, it's like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like this, this is an issue. We need, we need to probably stop and see what happened. Nope. He just tweets this. Now he's immediately eviscerated for this and for good reason, right? That this is horrific behavior, horrific behavior. He put that police officer and his entire family in danger by doing that because he wanted to score some points from blue checkmark people on Twitter, get, you know, tens of thousands of likes on his post. So he deletes the tweet, Right. And you're thinking, oh, okay, he deleted the tweets. Maybe he saw something, right? Maybe someone, hey, his manager's like, hey, you colossal moron, please don't do that, right? We're still trying to get all your hush money from China so that you don't say anything bad about, you know, your boss, Xi Jinping, but you got to take that down. So you take it down, you're thinking there's going to be an apology coming, right? There's got to be an apology of some type, right? This was his tweet in response after deleting his tweet. Anger does, does any of us any good And that includes myself. Doesn't do any of us any good. That includes myself. Gathering all the facts and educating does, though. You're thinking, oh, he's going to take a turn. My anger is still here for what happened to that little girl. My sympathy for her family and may justice prevail. His anger is here for that little girl. The little girl he's talking about, though, is not the girl in the pink that almost got murdered. He's talking about Makai Bryant. But hey, you know, we need to gather the facts and educate ourselves, right? astonishingly stupid. But then he tweets another thing. I'm so damn tired of seeing black people killed by police. I took the tweet down because it's being used to create more hate. Yeah, that's why you took it down. This isn't about one officer. It's about the entire system. There we go. It's about the entire system. And they always use our words to create more racism. I am so desperate for more accountability, all caps. LeBron James is a garbage human being. He's an absolutely garbage human being. I understand that some athletes are activists. I understand some athletes stand up for their causes. But the thing is, is it's only typically the athletes that are on the leftist side of things. You know, whenever they were doing all the, you can put whatever you want on the back of your jersey, you can put Black Lives Matter or No Justice, No Peace or any other type of thing that you you saw someone else do. But if a guy wanted to put on the back of his jersey pro-life or stop murdering babies in the womb, or anything like that. Yeah, that would have been okay, right? It's only people that think a certain way. LeBron James is a horrifically terrible, awful person. And I hope, because, you know, this officer has been put on leave, which is common. Anytime there's a police-involved shooting, the officer is put on leave until they get all the facts straight and everything like that. This this officer acted completely within the law and completely within his training and did the right thing. And he is a hero 
I hope he sues LeBron James to the moon. I hope he gets a fat check and can retire from his job as a police officer, but then chooses not to because he wants to continue to save people and protect people in the Columbus area. But I hope LeBron James has to physically pull out his checkbook, grab a pen, and sign it. It's like, yeah, that is the most expensive signature that you've ever done because you're a horrible, rotten person. You are horrible to your core that you would dox this man for doing the right thing. You supposedly care about black lives, right? You supposedly care about all these people and all these types of things. You care about narrative and you are a puppet. You are a useful idiot, LeBron James, but he's not the only idiot. Bree Newsom, who is a BLM activist, whatever that is, that's their official title. But in, in her uh, Twitter profile, her caption is defund and abolish police. So you can kind of get an idea of what's coming here. This is legitimately insane. Okay. The tweet is this. Teenagers have been having fights, including fights involving knives for eons. We do not need police to address these situations by showing up to the scene and using a weapon against one of the teenagers. Y'all need help. I mean that sincerely. Guys, what? who are we to sit here and judge another person for taking a knife and trying to stab another person? This is just kid stuff. Teenagers have been having knife fights outside of their houses literally for eons. Who would potentially ever stop a thing? A knife fight is basically like fighting with sticks, right? Even though in this country, significantly more people are murdered with knives every year than are with these evil assault rifles. Every single year, without question, bar none, knives kill significantly more people. And there was about to be another statistic in that moment with a black girl stabbing another black girl to death with a knife if that cop had not been there to intervene. But yeah, sure. Hey, why? why we don't need you racist white cops coming up and trying to keep us from killing our people with knives. What's wrong with you? The issue is with you. It's certainly not with us. And then there was a follow-up tweet as if that first tweet wasn't enough. And it was this. Everyone should be frightened that the ruling white elite have done such a thoroughly successful job of not only disconnecting us from the means of basic self-sufficiency, but also convincing us we need armed white officers to manage our children and communities. Frightening. Now, here brings up an interesting point. Because I think there should be self-sufficiency. And I don't mean of a racial group. I mean of everybody, every person. What happened in Makai Bryant's life to get her to that point where as a 16-year-old, she wanted to murder somebody with a knife? Because regardless of your circumstances, it's never okay to murder someone like that. But this idea that we don't need white officers managing our children and communities, we'll, we'll tell that to people in communities like Baltimore and Detroit and Chicago where the police have basically been like, all right, and police of every color, not just white police, police of all colors are like, sure, Shoot and kill each other. I don't give a crap. Because I want to go home to my family tonight. And you're potentially going to keep me from doing that. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense to me. But for all these idiots, you know, King Idiot being King LeBron James, the police department of Columbus immediately released the footage. Why do you think they did that, morons? Why do you think they released the footage immediately? Like th this apparently is not a police precinct that or a police department that wants to throw their police officers under the bus. So they're like, hey, we need to get ahead of this. 
before Black Lives Matter comes to our community, which they did anyway, before they come up here, we need to get in control of the narrative because this was about as justified a police shooting as you could possibly have. You literally need to use this video as an example to all kids or all young guys going through the academy to become police officers as, hey, in this situation, this officer had his gun at the ready just in case things popped off. Things were about to pop off. This person was about to be murdered with a knife and he saved this person's life. Everybody, let's get up and clap because this officer is a hero, right? They immediately showed it. Why do you think they would do that? That's incredibly important to know. But again, facts don't matter. Only the narrative matters. The narrative is legitimately the only thing that matters. Now, guys, if, if you lost track, I'm actually going through the top four main points. That's just point one. The other three are going to go by much faster. But here's the second main point. The situation with Derek Chauvin is not over by a long shot. Okay? This is just basic facts. His sentencing is set for eight weeks from the reading of the verdict. So that would have been the 20th of April. And if he's not given a maximum sentence on all charges, and if there aren't accelerators to that or things that, you know, increase the sentence, there will be fire and blood in the streets. That's just, that's just what's going to happen. Shalvin will appeal. And I frankly think he has a good case to get this overturned on appeal. So we're going to have to deal with this Derek Shalvin, George Floyd thing years down the road, right? Because if his try or if this judgment is ruled out or is overturned in an appellate court, it's somehow going to be even worse than if he had just been, you know, considered not guilty outright. So even famed lawyer Alan Dershowitz, who was, you know, involved in the O.J. Simpson trial and all that, he said that the verdict should be reversed on appeal. This is a guy who would know a thing or two about that, you know, Harvard Law School. So he was citing the threats made by Representative Maxine Waters that we showed earlier and the judge refusing to sequester the jury. This could absolutely continue to come up for us. So guys, just buckle in. It's not going to happen today or tomorrow, but it's going to keep happening. The third big thing I wanted to talk about is that we should all expect CRT, so that's critical race theory, to gain even more traction in public schools, universities, and churches now. So those are the places that matter because our kids are in public school, then we send them off to university, and hopefully we're involved in the church. Critical race theory is going to continue to expand. Because these well-meaning but moronic pastors are going to continue to look at these situations and think, I got to be on the right side of history here. All these other smart people seem to be saying these critical race theory things from the pulpit. They're reading, you know, Imber Max Kennedy and they're reading White Fragility and they're reading all these, these, these other folks. And, you know, they're not going to pull out the Marxist elements and use it in their church. They're going to use things that kind of sound like the gospel and all those different things. It's going to expand. And guess what? If you stand up against that and try to push back against that darkness, guess what they're going to call you? Duh, a racist, clearly. You're clearly a racist. You don't want us teaching your children that they should be defined by the contents of their color and not character, right? You're the racist. How dare you? How dare you hate people of color so much that you would possibly say that that's a negative thing to do? It's coming. It's coming. We're going to give you resources to fight against that, but for the love of God, you got to be able to fight because it is on its way. And the last thing here, as we bring all this to a close, this was never about justice for George Floyd. This was never about justice for him. This is about revolution. And it will continually be about revolution. This is not over. It is far from over. The left and groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa, and now the Democratic Party, essentially, will not stop until there are no more police left to defund and no more systems of power left to tear down. This is the Marxist playbook. Again, I encourage you guys to read the Communist Manifesto. You can get it for free, which is you know hilarious, or you can pay for it, which is even more hilarious. Read the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx 
and Friedrich Engels. This is, is astonishing, right? It is astonishing that these people are reading from a playbook. And Karl Marx was not alive. He was not alive to see what his philosophies would cause. The tens of millions of deaths and the hundreds of millions of morons, right? He had no idea. But the fight is coming. The only way that you can prepare to fight the other side is to know what they believe. That's why I read the Communist Manifesto last year, and I listened to it. That's why I continue to go back to my notes on it. The only thing that they want is the tearing down of the system that isn't that system. They're going to continue to push it, and it's only going to get worse. We've got to be ready to push it back. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So for you today, I've got a couple of links. The first is the link to the study that I talked about earlier. This is from the Daily Mail. It's that murder rates go up dramatically after BLM protests, study finds. So you can check that out. But also, I've got a book that I have not read yet, but I've read excerpts of it, and it is fantastic, and I was really, really looking forward to it. It's a book called Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe by Vody Bakum. So you know, we've been praying for Vody because Vody had a heart attack, some, some heart issues when he was in Africa, he was brought to the United States and apparently saved his life. But I've got a link to where you can buy that book. And guys, I'm going to start giving you links to books outside of just Amazon. So if you want to buy it from stores that aren't, you know, actively trying to deplatform people and take, uh, take away their voices, you can definitely buy from somebody else. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want me to come speak at your live event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. Check us out on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. Check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And if you want to donate, just throw a backslash donate on there. We want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>